Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of September 16th. Reactions to the September FOMC. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our takeaways from today's surprising FOMC meeting, as well as what tools the Fed has remaining to fight future economic weakness. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, heading into this afternoon's FOMC meeting, I don't think the market was expecting much from the Fed. We certainly didn't expect to see the Fed take much action, rather relying upon language to talk about how the the Fed would be accommodated for the foreseeable future and maybe highlighted with the revelation of this 2023 SCP forecasts. But it turns out we couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah, I think most of the market was focused on what the SEPs would look like. And there was a lot of attention paid to what the 2023 dots, for instance, would look like. But we actually got something much more surprising and I think much more impactful. So just turning to the statement, the FOMC statement said that the committee would aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time so that it averages 2% over time. And the committee expects that it would be appropriate to maintain this target range until conditions have reached levels consistent with the FOMC's assessment of employment and inflation has risen to 2% and is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. So this is obviously a pretty strong example of forward guidance, which we were not really expecting the Fed to use at this time. Yeah, I agree. I think when you look at the evolution of economic data recently, it's sort of continuing to improve slowly at a faster pace than many expected following the pandemic and also financial conditions that remain very supportive. It didn't seem that there was much need for the Fed to take additional action here, which is why today's action is so surprising. So at first I thought, well, maybe this is the Fed just incorporating the change to their policy framework that they announced at Jackson Hole last month, that this was just the Fed coming in and sort of formally codifying in their statement that this was going to be the way that monetary policy is operated going forward. However, when I was listening to the press conference following the FOMC statement, Chairman Powell continually hit on this theme that today's message was very powerful and very strong forward guidance. He used the word forward guidance multiple times, implying that this was an intentional move by the Fed to not just incorporate the change to the monetary policy framework outlined at Jackson Hole, but also to more explicitly say that we're not going to move policy rates until not only we see inflation at 2%, but that we see inflation printing above 2% so that the long-term average and inflation expectations over the long term fall around the 2% target. So this was an explicit move by the Fed. And if that's the case, then what I struggle with is why the Fed made the move today. Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't think there's a very clear answer. So traditionally, when the Fed has employed forward guidance, it's been done in order to lower longer term interest rates. Now, that's not really an issue here. You certainly couldn't convincingly argue that long term interest rates being too high is a headwind for the economy. So why did the Fed do this now? I think one potential explanation is that better now than 
later, it's not clear that this is going to be a more impactful tool to use down the road, perhaps when we do start to see inflation climb. So I think maybe just setting this target and putting it on the table and saying that this is now the threshold for the Fed to set rates makes sense in some ways. Yeah, I think that you're onto something there talking about how this tool may not have been as useful down the road. And I'll reference the press conference again, how Chairman Powell continued to talk about the interplay between inflation and inflation expectations. So potentially part of what was motivating today's messaging was this fear of deflation that Chairman Powell, somewhat surprisingly, at least to me, revealed at the press conference. On two separate occasions during the press conference, Chair Powell talked about how if inflation and inflation expectations fall sufficiently, the Fed could theoretically lose their ability to support the economy. Essentially, he's talking here about a fear of deflation, how lower inflation expectations leads to deflation. I was frankly surprised to hear the chairman of the FOMC talk about that, but if that's what's top of mind for the Fed right now, then getting out with a policy like this would be a way to work on keeping those inflation expectations high and ultimately the realization of above target inflation. Yeah, I think that's certainly one way to get inflation is to convince the market that the Fed is serious about inflation. And you did see inflation expectations through break-evens pop on the press conference and on the statement they came back a little bit. So it's questionable how effective that is. But I think certainly if the Fed is worried about deflation or about very, very persistently low inflation, that it makes sense to come out with the strong policy statement like they did today. But then if that's what the Fed's goal here is, is to work on inflation expectations, ultimately realizing inflation, then is it a bit disingenuous then if you look at the SCP estimates and you see that the Fed doesn't anticipate inflation reaching the target, let alone surpass the target, until at least 2023? Sherman Powell got a question on this during the press conference alluding to this very phenomenon. The Fed's saying we're not going to move until inflation gets above target, but then at the same time they're saying, but we're not certain we're going to reach target very quickly. Does that seem at all contradictory to you? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the SEPs are obviously an amalgamation of a lot of different independent forecasts, and they're just that, they're forecasts. I think the median forecast for inflation is bound to have something that is inching closer to the Fed's objective. So no, I don't think it's necessarily contradictory or disingenuous. I agree with you, Dan. I don't think it's disingenuous or contradictory. But what I think that this line of thought really highlights is there really is some uncertainty over the Fed's ability to really generate inflation, not just among the private sector, but also with the Fed itself. And so maybe above all else, what today's move really represents is the Fed really sacrificing flexibility. I mean, at this point, the Fed is going to be hoping that inflation reaches its goal by 2023. I think that Fed would be thrilled if they saw inflation printing at 2.5% in 2022. But what if we're in 2023, 2024, inflation is still below 2%? The Fed has now basically locked itself into not moving rates at all. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think the Fed has really stuck its neck out there and is risking losing a little bit of credibility if it doesn't end up getting this inflation, if the Fed, for whatever reason, does want to raise rates down the road without seeing this 2, 2.3, 2.5% inflation. And this kind of goes to, I think, Robert Kaplan's dissent today, where the statement said that he agreed with the policy target in the new framework, but preferred that the committee retain more flexibility with respect to its policy rate. And I think that is an understandable position if you're not 
completely confident that the Fed's going to generate this robust inflation over the next few years. Yeah, I suppose it's worth mentioning here that there were two dissents to the Fed's action today, the first being President Kaplan, as you discussed. I guess we'd classify that as a hawkish dissent. I guess it qualifies as hawkish now if you don't want to completely commit to keeping rates at zero bound for the next three years. The other dissension coming from President Kashkari, this would be, I guess, considered a dovish dissension. He wanted to see the word sustainable attached to inflation moving to or above the Fed's inflation target. So two dissensions, Chair Powell says at his press conference, that would be expected, I guess, when you're implementing a seismic shift in monetary policy as large as what they announced in Jackson Hole. That makes sense to me. It's going to be difficult to make a move of that magnitude and have everyone unanimous in the way it should be implemented. But it just goes to show you that there was at least one Fed governor concerned about the flexibility that the Fed was sacrificing today in order to send such a strong forward guidance signal to the market. One final note before we move on from the question of why did the Fed do this today, I think it's worth noting that the next FOMC meeting is on November 5th, two days after the presidential election. Now, that doesn't necessarily preclude the Fed from doing anything of note at the November meeting, but it would be logical to think that the Fed would like to avoid making large changes at that meeting if possible and in some way potentially being perceived as having some type of reaction to the election in either direction. So if the November meeting is sort of off the table now in terms of significant action from the Fed, then maybe there was some perception that the Fed wanted to do this now ahead of what would perceive to be a potentially volatile time period in the next couple of months, given virus, vaccines, presidential election, all the factors we've been talking about these past few weeks, all on the horizon in the next two months. And the Fed wanted to just give the markets a little bit of a boost heading into that uncertain time period. Yeah, I think that's especially true given that there is a real possibility that two days after the election, we still don't know who the president-elect will be. And so I think the Fed has a lot of rationale to just avoid making significant policy moves there if they can. Dan, one other thing that jumped out to me about the press conference was the repeated calls from Powell for more fiscal stimulus. Now, this is nothing new, but I did feel like today they were a little bit stronger and more pointed, the calls for Washington to come together and agree to another fiscal stimulus bill. Powell said that the recovery in spending that we've seen over the past couple of months likely owes to fiscal stimulus payments and unemployment benefits. And he pointed to the potential for a reversal from that if we didn't get another. So nothing extremely new there, but I just thought it was interesting that he mentioned it a few times and just the way that he kind of cautiously wades into these fiscal policy waters, which Fed chairs have traditionally tried to avoid or at least be very cautious around. I thought that was at least somewhat noteworthy. Yeah, I'm certainly with you. I mean, of the notes I took at the press conference, one of the main ones was how Chairman Powell continued to call for fiscal stimulus. And I think it's just a continuation of his tone at the last few meetings. I actually think the statement portion of the press conference before the Q&A, that portion regarding fiscal stimulus, I think, was word for word from the last press conference. But I agree with you. I think he was pressed on a little bit more by reporters this time around. You know, he was initially sort of alluding to these private sector forecasters who are building in the assumption for more fiscal stimulus into their forecasts. And then when pressed by a reporter, he basically said that, yeah, private sector forecasters, but also those within the FOMC are also assuming more fiscal stimulus. He certainly highlighted the downside represented by there not being more stimulus, talking about permanently displaced workers and things of that nature. I think that the message came across pretty clearly. 
and that's been a view that we've shared that more fiscal stimulus would be required to prevent a widening in spreads. I've been personally surprised by the resilience that risk assets have shown without more fiscal stimulus. I think Chairman Powell actually alluded to a similar degree of surprise that the economy is held in as strongly as it has so far, given the expiration of a lot of CARES Act benefits. But even Powell said that more weakness is likely to come without more stimulus. So that's just something certainly worth highlighting that Powell continues to see the need for more fiscal stimulus, especially since we haven't really seen a negative reaction from financial markets in the absence of fiscal stimulus to this point. Dan, anything else you took away from the press conference worth noting? Yeah, Dan, one other thing, and this, I think, segues nicely into the next section we were going to talk about with respect to the Fed's remaining tools, and that's the potential for the Fed to change their QE guidance. And Powell was asked about this a little bit, and he alluded to the fact that the FOMC talked about potentially changing their QE program at this meeting but left it unchanged for now, saying that its setting is appropriate currently, but that they do have the flexibility. And I think there's a couple different things that they could do with respect to QE and their tools more broadly moving forward. Yeah, certainly at the press conference, he actually received a question basically asking if the Fed was out of ammo. And he said, no, we're not out of ammo. And prior to the FOMC meeting today, as I was planning out the podcast, we were planning to talk about tools that the Fed had remaining at its disposal, expecting not much action from the Fed today. And I wrote down a few, and one of them was forward guidance. I think we can now cross that off the list since the Fed basically used that bullet today. I mean, there's not going to be more date-based forward guidance now that we've received objective-based. So we can cross that off the list and have a discussion of really what remains. You started talking about what remains and what those tools might mean for credit spreads going forward. You talked a bit about changing the composition of QE purchases. I think that's the wild card in terms of the impact it would have on credit spreads. Certainly, depending on the way you change the composition of those purchases, it could have either a significant impact of credit spreads or no impact. Obviously, if you are buying a lot more corporates and utilizing the SMCCF in a much larger fashion, obviously, we expect to see credit spreads move in significantly. If you're just changing the maturity profile of treasury slash MBS purchases, that we would expect to have a less significant impact on credit spreads. And by changing the maturity profile of QE purchases here, I'm obviously alluding to the idea of a WAM extension, not an operation twist, because we're not expecting to see the Fed actively sell short-end securities, but a WAM extension where the Fed just concentrates more of their purchases on the long end of the curve. And Dan, would you expect a WAM extension to have any significant impact on credit spreads? You know, I don't think there would be a huge impact on credit spreads due to a WAM extension. I think it's actually possible we could have a credit spread steepener. I think a WAM extension would likely have a technical flattening impact on the treasury curve, albeit probably a pretty modest one. And if corporate debt yields are unchanged, I think there could be a modest steepening in credit spreads. I think you could see some of the longer dated credit spreads underperform treasuries that are now slightly richer, whereas some of the shorter dated spreads are going to outperform the cheapening treasury yields. But overall, probably not a very significant impact. I think the bigger impact we would get is on something like yield curve control. If the Fed decided that they were going to cap treasury yields at certain rates, that is something that I would expect to be pretty bullish for credit spreads. Do you agree with that, Dan? Yeah, I think in terms of tools remaining to the Fed, I think yield curve control is the one that spread market investors really have to be on the lookout for. Because what yield curve control represents to me is like cementing of this idea that treasury rates are not going to move higher. And what that does is it just intensifies 
the reach for yield environment that we are expecting to prevail for most of 2020-21 and potentially longer than that, judging by the experience of the 10 years following the global financial crisis. We've been calling for spreads to reach all-time lows during the current cycle and potentially as early as next year based on a strong yield grab environment. And yield curve control would be placing the most amount of emphasis that I can think of potentially in history on carry and how important it is to enhance your yield via carry since we're not going to see significant moves upward in treasuries. You know, your downside from a price return standpoint is basically capped, at least for now. So carry is going to play an extremely important role. It's going to be the strongest yield grab we've ever seen. And that's what's going to likely propel spreads to all-time lows. So I think yield curve control is the big one for spread market participants. And you know, having talked about WAM extension and yield curve control, and now today crossing off enhanced forward guidance, I really don't see much for the Fed. Now, you never want to say the, the Fed doesn't have more tools than that, but do you see anything else? No, I think those are the big ones. Obviously, negative rates are always going to be talked about. I think we're both in agreement that this Fed is not interested in doing negative rates. Could President Trump win re-election? And he's been a vocal proponent of negative rates, so if he wins, could he replace Powell with a Fed share that is maybe more receptive to negative rates? It's possible. But certainly with this Fed, I don't see that being firmly on the table. And so I think with respect to major Fed policy tools, I think that just about covers it. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. So let's take today's Fed meeting and the outlook for what the Fed will do in the future and try to incorporate it into our view on spreads in the next few months. We've been pretty vocal on wanting to be underweight credit here ahead of this period of significant uncertainty that we've talked about. But based off of another dovish surprise from the Fed today, the outlook that I just talked about for 2021 being potentially all-time tights and spreads, holding that credit underweight becomes more and more difficult by the day as we continue to wait for wider spreads that just may not come, given all the accommodation from the central bank and consistently good news on the vaccine front and economy recovering potentially better than most expect, all the while missing out on extremely important carry given how low rates are. It's just becoming more and more difficult to hold that credit underweight. So are we changing our view here? I think that to answer that question, we've been leaning more and more on break-even analysis. And we've looked at break-even analysis in a couple of ways, the first being the sort of traditional measure of break-evens that's deployed in spread markets, which is how much movement in price is needed to offset the carry advantage of being long spread products. And perhaps not surprisingly, that move in spreads is near all-time lows going back to the early 90s. All it takes is a 15 basis point spread widening to wipe out an entire year's worth of carry. So from that perspective, obviously, break-even don't look very attractive, sort of in support of holding that credit underweight. But we also recognize that that break-even analysis only matters if you end up selling your bond and realizing the losses of the spread widening. So perhaps a more applicable break-even analysis is actually if we set a time horizon to the end of next year, if we expect next year to be very low yielding. How much wider do I need credit spreads to move in the next one, two, or three months in order to break even with the carry I'm missing out on right now? And Dan, I think you looked at that relationship. What did you find? Yeah. So in the next month, we found that it's worthwhile to be underweight credit if spreads widen about eight and a half basis points. If you want to hold that underweight position for two months, you'd need to see 19 basis points of widening, and three months would require 30 basis points of widening in spreads before being underweight would pay off. So obviously, as you hold an underweight position longer and longer, you're going to need to see more widening in order for it to be worth the lost carry. 
Now, in normal times, I think we would probably prefer to hold on to that carry rather than wait for widening that may or may not ever come. But given the risk factors on the horizon, I think there is impetus to hold underweight positions for a very short time horizon here leading up to the presidential election, given the massive amount of uncertainty with the expectation that spreads could meet that widening threshold in the very near term where you could find better entry points before holding on to overweight positions into next year once we get more clarity on the vaccine and economic growth picture clears up. Yeah, even just looking at the standard deviation of credit spread moves in the last 20 years, we get an average spread change of 10 basis points per month. And if we expect the next two months to be more volatile than even that, it seems like those break-evens are quite reasonable. So it seems to me that your odds of breaking even are at least pretty good in the next two months, and you have the chance for a significant spread widening that that could give you some outperformance. And two months gets you to mid-November here, which would give you past the presidential election. Theoretically, we will have received some vaccine headlines, either good or bad. We've received two months of data on how the virus is spreading as temperatures drop in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's going to be a key two months. It seems reasonable enough that we could get an eight to nine basis point move per month in those two months and the potential for a sharper move if a strong risk off environment does materialize. But whether or not we get that spread widening over the next two months, I think it's time to start initiating those longs, looking forward to next year, which we, as I've talked about plenty of times here, which we expect to be a very low spread, low yield, challenging market environment. So Dan, unless you have any other strong or powerful takeaways from the Fed's press conference today, I think that concludes Macro Horizons. Anything else to add? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.